Welcome to DC Schmooze with OU Advocacy. We're getting to know some of our nation's elected leaders and learning about their policy goals. Join us as we dive in. Hello, my name is Nathan Diamond, and I'm the executive director of the Orthodox Union Advocacy Center, and we are here for another edition of the DC Schmooze. And we are honored to be joined by Senator Tom Cotton, Republican of the great state of Arkansas. Good day, Senator Cotton. Good day to you, Nathan. Thanks for having me on. Thank you so much for being with us. Um, you uh, you recently authored uh, a book that really takes a very interesting look at the history uh, of American foreign policy and national defense policy. It's titled Only the Strong. Um, and uh, I'd like to... I'd like to chat with you a bit about your overall, uh, the overall framework that you put in that book, and then maybe we can connect it to some of the, the foreign policy challenges we're facing now uh, in the spring of 2023. It would be a useful lens for, for people to look at. But before we do that, perhaps uh, a lot of people in the Orthodox Jewish community know of you, but maybe um, for those uh, who don't follow uh, politics super closely, uh, if you want to just give a little bit of your own background and journey to uh, where you are today in the Senate. Yeah, sure, Nathan. Um, so uh, I grew up on a farm in rural Arkansas, about uh, halfway between Little Rock and the Oklahoma border. Um, not in a political family, and in those days, Arkansas was a one-party Democratic state anyway. Um, but I did grow up in a, a family that was patriotic and conservative in the small C, sense of um, raising me to value uh, and certainly understand hard work and the value of a dollar and the importance of family and faith. Um, after high school, I went on to college and law school at Harvard, uh, but uh, in my last year in law school, the 9-11 attacks happened, and that really changed my direction in life. From that point forward, I wanted to serve in uniform. I finished school and worked for a couple of years to pay off my loans, but then joined the Army where Became an infantry officer and served for almost five years uh, at uh, the 101st Airborne in Iraq. Was a, I was a platoon leader and then in Afghanistan uh, with a reconstruction team. And in between those two tours, I was at Arlington National Cemetery uh, with the Old Guard, the Army Regiment that performs honors funerals in the cemetery and military ceremonies around the capital region. Um, I, I got out of the Army uh, after doing all that in 2009 and went to work uh, in business. And then in 2011, uh, I decided to run for the House of Representatives. Uh, Arkansas was in the middle of a political uh, sea change going from a one-party Democratic state to a state that had always been conservative, but now voted for the conservative party in America, the Republican Party. Uh, and I was elected to the House in 2012 and elected to the Senate in 2014, where I've now been for eight years. I guess you could say I'm starting to become a gray beard uh, and uh, gray gray around my temples. I don't know if it's caused by the kids at home or the kids at work, <laughs> but... Uh, it, it's uh, definitely starting to come in a little bit more, and hopefully I've uh, developed the, the wisdom to match. I, I have to ask, um, what what do you find is the most striking difference? There could be so many, but what do you find is the most striking difference between being in the military and being in the United States Senate? <laughs> well, the, there obviously are a lot of differences, and I can make a lot of jokes about it, but there is a really important critical difference, and it gets to our system of government. Um, the executive branch, it is there to execute. It, it is there to make decisions and, and carry them out after the legislature has passed laws. And no more, nowhere is that the case more than in the military, especially when you're in combat. You have to make split-second decisions almost every second in combat where lives are in the balance. 
Um, as one of my drill sergeants said, you know, sometimes it doesn't matter if you choose what decision you make, but you have to make a decision. Even if it's a wrong decision, it's better than sitting around indecisively debating things endlessly while the enemy just calls in artillery on your fixed position. Uh, contrast that with the Senate. Uh, the Senate was not designed by our founders to be quick and decisive. It was designed to be deliberate and careful, sometimes providing the sober second thought uh, to the House of Representatives or even popular opinion. That's why, for instance, it's divided into three different classes. Only a third of it's up for re-election every uh, year or every two years. Uh, so it takes at least four years to get to a majority of the new seats while you have six-year terms. Um, and while originally it was elected indirectly to the state legislatures. So you can make a lot of jokes about the difference between the military and, and the Senate, but uh, it does reflect a more fundamental feature of our system of government that I think sometimes forget when, you know, when people say that they think the Senate is moving too slowly or it's not enough action. It's like you really don't understand what James Madison had in mind uh, when he and our founding fathers designed the Senate as such an important uh, feature of our constitutional system of government. Yeah, that's so interesting. And we'll talk about the jokes another time. Uh, <laughs> the, the, I, there must be plenty, but so it's interesting. So, you, and that's also a good transition to to what you the framework that you lay out in your book, um, because particularly right the, the 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 executive branch, the president, really has so much power in the realm of foreign policy uh, and and defense policy. Obviously, Congress plays a critical role in funding the military and ratifying treaties and things like that. But but. Um, in the first section of your book, which is provocatively titled Decline by Design, uh, you lay out a framework um, uh, to not to look at where we are now in American foreign policy, really going back quite some time. Maybe you want to briefly explain to our, our listeners um, what you mean by decline by design. Sure. And the decline uh, about which I speak in my book is the decline of American power and freedom of action that our founders envisioned for us and that some of our great statesmen like Ronald Reagan uh, tried to achieve as well. Um, if you go back about 100 years, the founding of the progressive movement, and really the political founder of progressivism, Woodrow Wilson, who was a professor uh, of progressivism before he became president, you see the first of two strains of contemporary progressive foreign policy, what you might call a kind of liberal internationalism, that uh, American power is okay to use, but only when it's being used not for what Woodrow Wilson would have called our narrow or selfish self-interest, but rather on behalf of other peoples or abstractions. And if you look at Wilson's major speeches about foreign policy, especially his speeches about World War I, his declaration of war, and the 14 points that he laid out, you'll see that he speaks very little in there about America's interests. It's about the interest of smaller European nations or abstractions that you may not call something like the rules-based international order. You hear that term a lot today, something that no American soldier ever picked up a rifle to fight for. And you continue to see it over time as well. You know, one of the modern famous examples is Madeleine Albright uh, in the early days of the Clinton administration, wanting to put thousands of troops into Somalia and rebuild it into a democracy that it had never been. Colin Powell being astonished at this point as he wrote in his memoirs. That's kind of one strain of liberal internationalism, of progressive foreign policy. You might call it liberal internationalism. Um, another strain comes from the, the Vietnam era, and it's the direct Senate of Wilson, you know, who rejected our founding principles and the Declaration and Constitution as a suitable guide for modern times. Um, and I call this the blame America first Democrat thinking or liberal isolationism. 
Because um, once you reject America's founding principles, it's not a very far step to rejecting America itself. And unfortunately, we saw that a lot from the new left in the Vietnam era up to today and claims of you know systemic racism and um, that sort of thing. Um, and that way of thinking is that it, America is so flawed itself, how could we possibly use our power even on behalf of other people's Therefore, America shouldn't have this kind of power. It shouldn't be so strong. It shouldn't have freedom of action. Uh, today, you see that most commonly in, say, the thinking of someone like a Bernie Sanders. Um, and you still you see those tendencies pulling in both directions, like today in Ukraine, for instance. Joe Biden, again, speaks a lot about abstractions like the rules-based international order, um, as opposed to explaining to Americans why it's good for America that we support Ukraine, we help them win, and, and we do more to help them win, which is what I would do, is, you know, rather than saying we're going to be with them as long as it takes, I think we should be helping them win as quick as we can. And then you see some elements on the left who say, well, we, you know, we shouldn't be doing this at all, we should be suing for peace, or the Progressive Caucus last summer put out a letter basically demanding that, and then you know, the White House pressured them to take it back. So, so that's the kind of two strains of progressive thought going back 100 years to Woodrow Wilson. And the second part of the book, what I lay out is what I call the founder's thinking or, or Ronald Reagan's way of thinking, uh, is that you really want to have uh, power and <clears throat> you want to have freedom of action. The book's title comes from some basic points, basic facts of life, that only the strong can survive in a dangerous world. And the world remains dangerous to this day. Not only the strong uh, can preserve their freedom. And, and for that matter, if you care about the conditions of others, other people's, only the strong can afford to protect the weak, and only the strong can afford to be merciful. Um, so what I lay out is kind of a roadmap to rebuild the basic pillars of American strength and power so we can remain the world's superpower, the world's most dominant force for good. That, 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 that's so interesting. Just one, one point, I guess, just to really focus in on, you, you, you mentioned it, but maybe to sharpen it a little bit more, is that it is the case that democratic or progressive administrations, right, even the recent ones, Obama, Clinton, they did engage in military action, but you're suggesting um, how they do military action is is much different from how President Reagan, uh, for example, or George, I guess George H.W. Bush engaged in military action, right? You're really drawing a con. Very, very much so. So first off, um, that liberal Democrats are often very hesitant to right. use the military, e even when it's called for, even like, say, for instance, when Ronald Reagan deposed a bloodthirsty Marxist regime in Grenada that provided the last critical air link from Soviet Russia into Cuba, or when uh, George H.W. Bush deposed uh, the regime in Panama because of its impact on drug trafficking into the United States. Strong, decisive action. Um, I can give you other examples as well, like when Ronald Reagan sank half of Iran's Navy in 1988 or uh, targeted Muammar Gaddafi in 1986 for blowing up a, a discotheque in Berlin. But that, those are some basic examples. Then you look at, say, what JFK did uh, in the Bay of Pigs, half measures that led to a terrible defeat, or how uh, JFK and LBJ both tied the military's hands behind its back in Vietnam, mismanaged that war badly, soured public opinion on it until Nixon took office and in essence won the war by the time he started his second term and we had the Paris Peace Accords. Or look at, for example, as I mentioned earlier, Somalia. Uh, George H.W. Bush, during the transition uh, from the election in 92 to Bill Clinton's inauguration in 93, 
decided to intervene in Somalia because of a famine. Um, now, the famine was not caused by a drought or any other natural disaster. It was caused by the warring uh, uh, clans in Somalia. Some members of his cabinet didn't think it was wise because until you eliminated the underlying civil war in Somalia, you weren't going to eliminate the famine in the long run. Uh, but nevertheless, he was the president. They went forward with it. Overwhelming decisive force, uh, almost 30,000 Marines and other troopers with a very narrow mission, which was to help the United Nations distribute the food aid to the Somali people. Bill Clinton comes to office. Not only does he cut the force back from 30,000 to 4,000 and give the United Nations more control over what those forces were doing, but he also vastly expanded the mission there beyond just distributing the food aid to actually going after those warlords. And the result was the Battle of Mogadishu, which from a military standpoint was one of the most one-sided battles our troops ever fought. We lost almost 20 uh, brave Americans that day, but accounts are that we killed 1,000 to 2,000 uh, of these warlords' uh, um, troopers. Um, but obviously it was a terrible strategic setback. Uh, we soon left Somalia and Osama bin Laden cited that example more than any other thing in his fatwas in the 1990s su suggests that America wasn't strong enough for a fight in the long run. So while it is the case that, that it, uh, liberal Democrats like Bill Clinton or Barack Obama or others will use military force, it is often the case that they use it in, in a half-hearted, feckless manner, which causes strategic setbacks, um, or they only use it to help other peoples or to vindicate abstract uh, principles like I'll go back to Libya. 1986, Ronald Reagan bombed Libya to retaliate for an attack on our troops in Germany. Uh, Muammar Gaddafi was a bloodthirsty dictator. I have nothing good to say for him. But after our Afghanistan and Iraq, he was scared straight. In 2003, he wanted to come in from the cold. He turned over all of his weapons of mass destruction, threw open the doors to his laboratories. George Bush removed him from the list of uh, state uh, sponsors of terrorism lifted sanctions. By 2011, he had become a de facto American ally, still a dictator, not a good man, but a de facto American ally. Yet Barack Obama decided to intervene with urging from Europeans. We toppled Gaddafi's regime and what has followed now for going on 12 years is chaos, which has unleashed radiating consequences throughout Europe and the Middle East. Uh, just another example of using military force where we don't have a clear national interest at stake uh, and the consequences for doing so. Right, right. So let's, in the time we have remaining, let's, if I, if we may, fast forward to where we are now, um, and and think about some of the current foreign policy challenges. You you already touched on Ukraine, uh, obviously of great concern as well um, in the Middle East, especially for the pro-Israel community, is the threat from Iran. Um, and how do you how do you see um, the framework that you've so uh, insightfully developed, um, explaining and informing, um, I guess, where we are with regard to American policy toward Iran and 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 the Middle East region, and and from your perspective, where we ought to be going. I guess, I guess, the good news, or so to maybe, is President Biden came in saying he wanted to revive the Iran nuclear deal that Obama had forged, and I guess the good news is that. Uh, for a combination of reasons, that has not occurred. Um, but nonetheless, Iran is making terrible, terrible trouble across the region. Um, so how does the framework inform inform where we are and maybe, you know, from your perspective, where we ought to be going? Well, uh, to go back to the Obama uh, era, um, 
Barack Obama's view of Iran and America's relationship to Iran, I think, is a classic example of blame America first thinking. You know, he, he said repeatedly, time and time again, in his campaign, in his books, uh, in his big uh, Cairo speech during the apology tour, during some of his speeches selling the Iran nuclear deal, that America had sinned against Iran. We were responsible for a coup against a democratically elected leader in Iran in 1953. Yet Barack Obama deeply believes that. He believes that if, if America would simply pull in its horns, apologize and atone for its sins against Iran and treat them as a normal nation, then they would reciprocate. That's why it, it was always about much more than just a nuclear deal. It was a grand effort to kind of realign our traditional partners in the Middle East. And of course it failed because Iran it does not see America that way. They see us as the great Satan. They see us as the power against which they are resisting. The nuclear deal was just the most critical part of that effort to have a grand realignment. Now, I don't think Joe Biden has the same kind of systematic thinking when it comes to Iran. I just think at this point, the Iran nuclear deal for the Democratic Party has become such a point of partisan pride and personal honor that they he had felt he had no choice but to pursue it. Uh, unfortunately, um, you know that is empowered and emboldened Iran. Uh, in addition to getting to the edge uh, of a nuclear breakout with enough fissile material to create a bomb, they've also attacked American positions in the Middle East 83 times since Joe Biden took office. And we've only retaliated four times. Most recently, they killed an American, and that's the only reason Joe Biden chose to retaliate. So Iran right now understandably thinks that it can attack Americans and not face consequences. And that's to say nothing uh, about all of their destabilizing activities throughout the region. You know, right now, Israel in the first four months of 2023 ha has had more violence than, than at any time, probably since the second Intifada. Um, Iran is the hidden hand behind almost all of that. Iran, of course, is the sponsor of Hezbollah, the sponsor of Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad, say nothing about what they're doing in Syria, in Yemen, and in Iraq. Uh, and again, they feel emboldened, like, like they can act with impunity. And of course, that will only be more so should they get nuclear weapons. So I'm very worried, probably as worried as I've been in my time in public office, about the security and stability in the Middle East and for Israel in particular. And and so what do you think we should be doing policy-wise, uh, if I may ask, you know, again, based on your framework and based on what you just said? Well, I, most of what we should be doing is something Joe Biden would never do. I mean, having a credible uh, threat of military action against Iran would go very far to causing them to change their way of thinking. I mean, look what happened when Donald Trump ordered the killing of Qasem Soleimani, their terrorist mastermind, in early 2020. The attacks on America ceased, and they ceased for the rest of uh, uh, Donald Trump's tenure. Uh, and then they almost immediately started when Joe Biden took office. I think probably the best interim step that we can do, and I'm working on this in the Congress, is to make sure that we are getting Israel all of the weapons and all of the tools and all the training that Israel needs to supply that credible threat of military action. Because I do believe the Ayatollahs think that Netanyahu would uh, strike uh, Iran if that's what it took to save the Jewish state from an Iranian nuclear bomb. Um, they may have questions if Israel has the military capability that America does, for instance, in refueling aircraft or long-range strike aircraft or missiles. Um, but I think what we should do in the Congress is try to answer those questions quickly and clearly that, yes, while we would never want Israel to have to fight on its own, that Israel is capable of fighting on its own if that's what's necessary to preserve the Jewish state. Right. 
and, and and it seems to me that also what ties into your to your uh, explanation and thinking about American foreign policy is how not only we deal with our adversaries, but how we deal with our allies. Um, there's the other side of the coin uh, to to uh, to not using American power, right, and being the strong nation that you're calling for, uh, either to uh, execute military operations or to deter. Uh, enemies from doing certain things because we have that capability is how we partner with and how we invest in our allies, right? Yeah, you know, the the, the um, Roman consul Sulla uh, had engraved on his own tomb um, before he died, no friend has done me a favor nor enemy an injury that I've not repaid in full. Well, that may be a little blunt. Some may even sound crude to some people. It's not a bad guide to foreign policy in a dangerous world. And it would be nice if every country was like Israel or Great Britain, um, who shared our democratic system of government, shared our political and social sensibilities, and we had a, a shared history and culture and religion and linguistic backgrounds. Uh, that's not the way the world works, though. Uh, we have to take our allies where we find them. We have a lot of partners and allies around the world who don't share those sensibilities, who don't share that system of government, but are critical for our nation's security prosperity and our national interest. Just look around the Middle East, in Egypt or in Jordan or Morocco or Saudi Arabia or United Arab Emirates. These are not countries that we have a shared democratic system with or that necessarily share American or Western cultural and social sensibilities, but they have been good allies. They are critical to our national security. They're critical to Israel's or critical uh, to the region's stability. And we should be working more closely with them. We shouldn't be, for instance, as Joe Biden said about Saudi Arabia, trying to turn them into a pariah state. Um, but this is, again, like uh, you alluded to, this is just common in the liberal Democrat way of thinking. You know, if you go back to the Obama era again and think about the Arab Spring, uh, Barack Obama was criticized for what many people viewed as a kind of ad hoc, unpredictable, scattershot approach to the uh, Arab Spring on a nation-by-nation -nation basis. I suggest not only the strong, it was a very clear uh, pattern of Obama's behavior during the Arab Spring. If you're a pro-American, like Mubarak in Egypt, like Gaddafi in Libya, you got toppled. If you were anti-American, like Assad in Syria or the Ayatollahs in Iran, you got propped up and celebrated. Very simple dividing line in the way he approached that crisis. We should be doing the exact opposite. We should stand by our friends. We should stand up to our adversaries. And when we do that, it helps our friends reform internally as well. You know, in, in the Trump era, people predict, you know, as, all, as always, like, oh, if we, if we move the embassy to Jerusalem, there's going to be an uprising in their street. There wasn't. Oh, if we have a no daylight policy with Israel, you know, it'll cause uprisings. We didn't get uprising. We got new peace agreements with countries like Bahrain and the United Arab Emirates. Or look back to the Reagan era. You know, the Philippines and South Korea both started the Reagan era as military dictatorships, but because they were critical in the fight against Soviet uh, Russia and Ronald Reagan stood closely by them. They ended that era on the path to democracy. And look where they are now. Look at South Korea. It's one of the most prosperous and democratic nations in the world. That all happened because Ronald Reagan stood by a close ally uh, against a deadly adversary and gave them the confidence of American support to take the steps towards internal reforms. Yes, indeed. And you know, the, the, other, the other dimension of it that I would add, if I may, is, is you know, to use the example of the of the embassy move. Besides, not only did the did the move by President Trump of the embassy, American embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, um, you know, uh, 
not get the reaction and foster the Abraham Accords, which have been so productive, you'd also uh, delivered a very clear message to the Palestinians that they just can't sit on their hands and do nothing and not, you know, basically have consequences imposed upon them um, and, and just wait for some future American administration to deliver Israel to them on a silver platter. And that was important as well. Um, so what, j j just, j just to wrap up, the, you, you're sitting in the United States Senate, um, um, and at least for the next two years, we still have President Biden uh, uh, as the commander in chief. Um, what, what are you hoping to do or able to do in the legislative body, in the Senate, um, that can try to move things in the direction more toward what, what you're describing is, is from your perspective, hopeful and beneficial to American foreign policy and making America the strong, the strong force for good in the world that, that we all want. Well, first, I, I think with the house and Republican control, the Senate and democratic control, we should have measure, measured expectations, <laughs> how many laws will pass. Um, uh, and again, that's not a bad thing, especially if you look at the burst of legislative activity in the first two years of Biden administration, I, I wish we had had less legislative activity, uh, but there's still a lot that we can agree on, on a bipartisan basis. You know, I mentioned earlier that I'd like to see, um, more rapid deployment of the military, uh, um, capabilities that Israel needs. That's something I'm working on in our annual defense bill, just like I'm working on trying to make sure that we're rebuilding our munition stockpiles and expanding and strengthening our defense industrial base as well. Um, I, I've got new legislation that I, I've introduced with Senator Katie Britt, a new Republican from Alabama, and a couple of Democrats as well, Brian Schatz and Chris Murphy, uh, that would address some of the harms that social media is causing to our kids, you know, that, that it would keep kids under 13 off social media and require parental consent uh, for kids who are 13 to 17. Um, you never know when these kind of strange bedfellow coalitions are going to bubble up, but it's also the case that it's usually going to take those kind of bipartisan approaches when you have divided government to pass something that doesn't have a, a deadline or a forcing mechanism to, to require action. Well, that's, it's, it's wonderful that you're doing that. And, and, uh, on a whole host of fronts in, in, in our community and the Orthodox Union, we're, we're, we're very supportive of measures to try to uh, protect not only our children, but, but our civic society from what's, uh, the gasoline that social media is pouring on so many fires. It's, it's certainly contributed to the rise of anti-Semitism, uh, among other, among, among other ills that we're confronting right now. Um, so thank you for doing that. Um, and if, however we can be supportive to that effort, um, we're, we're eager to partner with you, uh, on that. Um, so, um, but, uh, this has been a really fascinating conversation. Uh, only the Strong uh, by Senator Tom Cotton is the book, and it provides a really interesting and sweeping framework for how we think about American uh, support and defense policy. Any any closing thoughts you'd like to share, uh, Senator? Thank you so much. Uh, Nathan, thanks very much for having the conversation. I hope all of your uh, audience will consider look, taking a look at Only the Strong. Again, I think it's got a, a lot of interesting history in it. Uh, some will be new to your uh, audience, but hopefully some useful reminders uh, of what we need to do in a dangerous world to keep America safe. Great. Well, thank you so much. My name is Nathan Diamond, and this has been the OU DC Schmooze with Senator Tom Cotton.